0: The views, opinions, and findings contained in this podcast are those of the host and subject matter experts. They should not be construed as official Department of Defense positions, policies, or decisions unless designated by other official documentation. Hi, welcome to Clinical Updates and Brain Injury Science Today, or CUBIST, a podcast for healthcare providers about current research on traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. This program is produced by the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, otherwise known as DivBIC. I'm your host today, Don Marion. I'll be speaking with Amanda Gano about a recently published article on traumatic brain injury. Ms. Gano is a physician assistant and a subject matter expert on TBI at DivBIC. Amanda and I will discuss a study entitled The Prevalence and Stability of Sleep-Wake Disturbance and Fatigue Throughout the First Year After Traumatic Brain Injury, a study that was done by Simon Saksvik and colleagues and published in the Journal of Neurotrauma in May of 2020. Hi, Amanda, and thanks for bringing this article to our attention. Can you tell me a little bit about the study?
1: Hi, Dawn, sure. So, the topic of sleep disturbances after mild traumatic brain injury or MTBI is really important. And, you know, these disorders are really prevalent after MTBI and they can delay recovery, they can make some symptoms like cognitive difficulties and emotional or mood disorders worse if they're not adequately addressed. And this article is also really timely for us at DivBIC, as the listeners may have heard in our special episode, we have just released our newest clinical recommendation, Sleep Disturbances Following Concussion, MTBI, which is a resource for primary care providers to help recognize and manage the most common sleep disturbances that occur after TBI. So this article was a large prospective longitudinal cohort study that looked at the prevalence and the stability of sleep-wake disturbances and fatigue in three different groups. So they had an MTBI group, and then they had two control groups. They had a trauma group, and these were primarily patients with orthopedic injuries like sprain, strains, and fractures, and then they had a community control group. And I thought this study was really fascinating because it used the two different control groups to help assess some of the common confounders that have been prevalent in other MTBI and sleep studies, like pain or prior psychiatric diagnoses. And then this study also had a large sample size with 378 MTBI patients, and that helped create a representative sample.
0: Great. And plus, as you pointed out, it's a longitudinal study rather than a retrospective study. Uh, So uh, addressing sleep disturbances following TBI is uh, a really important aspect of recovery. Uh, I'm interested to hear what they found. So how was the study done exactly, Amanda?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, like I said previously, this was a longitudinal cohort and patients were recruited from a primary care municipal clinic and also a trauma center emergency department in Trondheim, Norway. Both of these facilities see a high volume of TBI and trauma patients. The patients were between the ages of 16 and 60 with a mean age of 31 years, and they had sustained an MTBI that met the World Health Organization criteria, which is really similar to the Department of Defense criteria that we're familiar with. So these patients had to have a witnessed loss of consciousness of less than 30 minutes. They had to have pre- or post-traumatic amnesia of less than 24 hours, and then a Glasgow coma scale between 13 and 15. Patients were excluded from the study if they had a severe ongoing alcohol or drug abuse or a severe psychiatric or somatic disease or condition that would complicate follow-up. They were excluded if they had any prior complicated mild, moderate, or severe TBI, so findings on imaging, a stroke or other acquired brain injury, or polytrauma, like a spinal cord injury, internal bleeding, severe fractures. Lastly, they were excluded if they presented to the ED or the clinic greater than 72 hours after their injury. So there were 82 trauma controls with orthopedic injuries, and they were recruited from the same two medical facilities. And they were included if they were within the same ages and they had an orthopedic injury, and they couldn't have an injury to the head or neck or any other polytrauma. And then the rest of that exclusion criteria was the same. And then the community controls were recruited from a convenience sample, so like hospital employees, family members of other participants, and both the trauma and community controls were matched to the MTBI patients in regard to age, sex, and education level.
0: That's cool, Amanda. As you pointed out, we know that sometimes outcomes or findings of these kinds of longitudinal studies are confounded because they don't have proper control groups. Uh, But this group really paid attention to that with the two different control groups.
1: Yeah, I like that too. I wanted to point that out.
0: Yeah. So what were the methods they used to collect the data for this study? Sure. So
1: patients were assessed at four different time points. First, within 72 hours of their injury. And then at the two week, three months, and then 12 months time points after injury. These patients completed a series of structured interviews and self-report questionnaires. So participants were asked about their injury history and also asked about any pre-existing psychiatric disorders and were asked to describe those in detail. So I mentioned patients that had severe psychiatric illness were excluded, but they did allow for patients who had psychiatric diagnoses to participate. And they categorized them into having pre-injury psychiatric disorders or not. And that's an important distinction because there is such an overlap between sleep disturbance and MTBI and psychiatric illness. They also separated out patients who had intracranial traumatic findings on CT scan and labeled them as complicated MTBI or uncomplicated MTBI. And there were only 31 patients or only 9% of the sample who had a complicated MTBI. Patients were then asked to compare their sleep need and sleep quality to the way it was before their TBI. They completed a series of validated self-report measures such as the insomnia severity index, the Epworth sleepiness scale, the fatigue severity scale, and a numeric rating scale for pain. Again, those were assessed at the different time intervals for the patients in both the treatment and control groups.
0: Um, Great. One problem that I think plagues a lot of these kinds of longitudinal studies is a relatively high dropout rate, especially when they try to follow them up at as long as one year after. What was the dropout rate like in this study, Amanda?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Don. So for this study, the attrition rate was actually pretty low. So even at 12 months, there was only a 15% dropout rate, so only 56 patients in the MTBI group, 11 patients in the trauma control group, so 13%, and 15 patients in the community control group, so 18%, were lost to follow-up. So, you know, this may have been because when the study was designed, they gave a gift certificate for each participant that followed up. And so they each got 54 euros for returning to the hospital for their follow-up visit. So that may have contributed.
0: So, so there was an incentive, is what you're saying, to return. Uh, that always seems to work. I, I know in some of the studies we do at Walter Reed, for example, they provide an incentive as well, and, and that uh, improves their follow-up. So what were the results of the study then, Amanda?
1: Sure. So among the 378 mTBI patients enrolled in this study, a very small percentage had a complicated mild TBI or any sort of intracranial lesion on CT. And less than 5% had LOC of greater than 5 minutes. So this cohort of TBI patients truly had, for the most part, what the DOD would consider a mild TBI. Patients with both complicated and uncomplicated TBI had significantly higher prevalence of increased sleep need, poor sleep quality, excessive daytime sleepiness, and fatigue than both the trauma and community controls. They also found that both trauma groups, so the MTBI and the orthopedic trauma controls, had a reduction in sleep-wake disorder and fatigue problems during their first year after injury. But the trauma controls, so the people that had the orthopedic trauma, had returned to their levels similar to the community controls by about three months after injury. And almost 53% of the MTBI patients who experienced these symptoms at two weeks after injury had persisting problems that lasted three months or longer. The results also showed that most patients did get better over time with 55% of MTBI patients and 77% of trauma control patients that either didn't even experience any sleep disturbances or had symptoms that resolved within the first three months. But a large proportion of the patients with MTBI that had sleep disturbance symptoms at three months had persistent symptoms that were still present at the one-year mark. Also important to point out regarding the history of psychiatric illness, this study found that reporting a prior psychiatric disorder was generally associated with poor sleep quality and fatigue across all the groups, but there was no evidence that this relationship differed between patients with MTBI and the control groups, so that was fascinating.
0: So Amanda, the authors pointed out specifically that at 12 months, it was unusual for the symptomatic MTBI patients to have a cluster or grouping of post-traumatic sleep and fatigue symptoms. Can you comment on that? And how is that different than at two weeks?
1: Yeah, Don. So I thought that was interesting too. Um, in this sample at two weeks, there was a lot of overlap between the different sleep symptoms, but at the one year mark, it seemed as if one problem emerged as the predominant problem. And so this might be helpful for primary care providers to keep in mind or watch out for that typically if these sleep symptoms do become chronic it may be in just one specific complaint cluster so the ones that this study addressed were increased sleep need excessive daytime sleepiness poor sleep quality and fatigue
0: finally amanda what were the limitations of the study
1: so all the information that was gathered was a patient self-report which is inherently inaccurate as you know Objective measures like polysomnography and actigraphy could have been effective in measuring things like total sleep time or sleep efficiency, but they weren't really evaluated in this study. The research also didn't have any direct information about shift work, social jet lag, sleep rhythms, and other things that could also impact sleep-wake outcomes. For the two-week, three-month, and one-year follow-ups, they indicated that a subgroup of patients with MTBI did not meet at the hospital for their follow-up assessments, but they instead answered the interviews over the phone or sent in their completed questionnaires via mail or email. And we know that in-person interviews are more accurate.
0: So what do you want our listeners to take away from this study?
1: Well, you know, with a high prevalence of sleep disturbances following MTBI, it's really important for providers to just be cognizant of the potential of these sleep problems to become chronic and try to address them as soon as possible. Most sleep disturbances in MTBI patients will resolve over time, but using clinical tools like the DivBIC sleep clinical recommendation to help primary care providers recognize and treat some of these symptoms early on might help to mitigate some of the chronic MTBI symptoms that we're seeing.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Amanda. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. You can find a link to this article and to the DivPIC clinical recommendation on sleep disturbances following MTBI in the description of this episode. You can stay up to date on future episodes by subscribing to Cubist on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also find links to the articles we discuss and other relevant resources. Cubist is produced and edited by Vinnie White and was hosted today by me, Don Marion. It is a product of the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, led by Division Chief Captain Scott Pine, Medical Corps, United States Navy. Thank you for listening to this episode. Next time, we will discuss TBI research, getting attention in the mainstream press.